Uh, for those of you that are new here, my name is Russ. I'm uh, on staff at New Community and have been for a while. And uh, today we are doing some heavy lifting in the scriptures, okay? We are a community that does not shy away from trying to be honest when we deal with the text. And today is uh, one of those texts. So if you're new here, welcome. Like uh, this is, uh, like I said, some heavy lifting. Last week, Kevin walked us through the first part of this passage. Uh, here it is. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not embitter your children. That was the section that we looked at last week, which carries a lot of resonance and a lot of weight as well. And uh, for those of you that have been part of New Community for a long time, you get this. But if you haven't been, you might ask yourself the question, why would you even just skip? You can skip these passages, right? Like we can talk about something about Jesus and, and his amazing qualities and characteristics and how deeply he loves us. And then just slide over this and get back into some of the stuff on how we love our neighbors. But why do you have to just keep going through the text and read it? And... Uh, Borrowing from Venerable here when he makes this statement that our, our motivation in doing so is the understanding the truth of Jesus. He states this, the discipline of theology should be practiced so that Christ would be treasured more completely, loved more extravagantly, and obeyed more faithfully. We are willing to walk into difficult subjects like this for this very reason. It's part of what Jerusha mentioned at the very beginning. To be a people of becoming, to, to change into who God is inviting us into, it actually takes us wanting to love more extravagantly and obey more faithfully. And so this discipline is uh, important for us. We've talked in the past about uh, scripture reading as rock climbing. And uh, those of you who've done rock climbing or even those of you who've just watched it, there are some routes up the wall that are very simple. Big handholds, big places to put your feet, um, less technical. And then there are some parts of the rock wall that are very intricate, incredibly detailed, nuanced, slight little handholds. They take a bit more expertise to maneuver. And in many ways, the way that we have read this passage that we just looked at, we've read it through the lens of big handholds. Real simple, easy climbing up the ladder or up the rock wall, and have not gotten into some of the more nuanced ways of reading the text. So for example, um, we've talked about this in the past, but a big handhold, one that makes reading scripture easier, is this little phrase, you've probably heard it. When literal sense makes common sense, seek to make no other sense about it. Which means, don't overthink it. It's literal. Like, just read it. You'll get it. Not a problem. Okay? Uh, and that phrase is taken from, I know some of you will quote this probably, but the Journal of Dispensational Theology from 1942 by Cooper. And uh, when he was writing, uh, he made this statement. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context, studied in light of the related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths, indicate clearly otherwise. 
So when literal sense makes common sense, seek to make no other sense about it. And when it comes to the household codes, this is the way we've read it. Again, that was our list from last week. So when we look at our text for this week, we would assume that it is equally as straightforward, just as simple to read. And so what I did before uh, I finished writing my text is I did a little Google search, uh, and I went beyond Google. I tried Bing, Yahoo, a few other search engines, just to make sure our uh, range of search was wide. And uh, I said, if you were going to teach a message on this particular passage, what would be some sermon titles that you could use? And here are our sermon titles. Christ, Lord of the Workplace. The Christian Worker. Christ in the Workplace. Make your work count. Thrive at work. A full day of work. A message on the relationship between faith and the workplace. Now, this is absolutely fundamental to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be people who understand that in all aspects of our life, we can live into the fullness of the kingdom of God, that we can demonstrate to others what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a work environment. Beautiful. Such a vital conversation for our day, because I think oftentimes it's overlooked. Those themes, those ideas, come from our passage for this morning. So here it is on the screen. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1. Now, if someone could explain how you can have these titles with that passage, it seems to me there's an elephant in the room. But we have had a tradition for a long time within the church of reading with literal sense to make common sense, and the plain reading of the text has been the church tradition in both the topic Kevin talked about last week as well as this topic. And in order to get a little bit of the understanding between last week and this week and to address this tension, I think it's helpful to recognize how some of the church fathers read the passage on wives and husbands before we understand a little bit more about this passage. So some of our church fathers said this. Unfortunately, no church mothers chimed in. This is what three examples are. Origin. It is not proper for a woman to speak in church, however admirable or holy what she says may be, merely because it comes from female lips. Chrysostom made this statement, but when one is required to preside over the church and to be entrusted with the care of so many souls, the whole female sex must retire before the magnitude of the task. Or... The wisdom of John Calvin when he said this, 
Let the women be satisfied with her state of subjection and not take it amiss that she is made inferior to the more distinguished sex. Now, you might be asking yourself, why, why bring up what we talked about last week and then bring it into what we're talking about this week? And here's why. Every time the household codes are mentioned, these are the Greco-Roman household codes that Paul is borrowing language from, every time they're mentioned, as it relates to women and their role in the home or in the church, 100% of the time, in Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Peter, all of them also reference either before the teaching on wives and husbands or after this connection to slavery. Every single time. So the words we just read about our passage today are always linked to the teaching related to women. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, the implications of that are quite astounding. What it means is simply this. If Christians are to use the passages that argue that the hierarchical relationship between men and women is divinely instituted and a proper approach to life and the church and the community, then, for consistency's sake, one would need to argue the same for the relationship between master and slave because they are one and the same in the passage. So, our text today is a complicated one because it's actually been one of the most destructive passages in the New Testament. It has been used to silence, enslave, and restrict people. And through millennia, some of the worst atrocities to humanity have come through the practice of slavery. So what we are talking about is a very serious topic. And the Roman Empire and the culture of Paul didn't view slaves as anything other than a thing. Not a person, but a thing. The Roman uh, Institute, or Aristotle, for example, made this statement. For a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Or drawing from the Roman Institutes, they made this statement. It is universally accepted that the master in a Roman Empire possesses the power of life and death over the slave. Further later on, in it, whatever a master does to a slave undeservingly, in anger, willingly, unwillingly, in forgetfulness, after careful thought, knowingly, unknowingly, is judgment, justice, and law. What Paul is speaking into this context when he utters the words that we just read in Colossians 3. Very oppressive culture, one in which this was the way people were viewed. And so this time-bound teaching that Paul is giving us illustrates something that Christians have then been, from that moment forward, using in a way to continue to oppress people. So let me give you some examples. Jefferson Davis made this statement. Slavery was established by decree of Almighty God. It is sanctioned in the Bible in both Testaments from Genesis to Revelation. So a lot of the thinking here, again, is centered on reading the text and then applying the text. 
So Leonard Bacon made the statement, whatever evidence there were both slaves and masters of slaves in churches founded and directed by the apostles cannot be got rid of without resorting to methods of interpretation that get rid of everything. So you have this tension going on, right? You have a group of people that are reading the text and they're saying, look, if you throw out this, you throw out everything. While at the same time, you have abolitionists who are fighting for freedom and equality for all people. What's interesting is one group viewed the other group as crazy radical. So here, I'll give you an example. They, the abolitionists, were considered to be radical. And often they were considered to be infidels. Because how could you, or they, say God was opposed to slavery if it was so obvious in the Bible he was not? Or Reverend Henry Van Dyke in 1860, talking about abolition, said the tree of abolition is evil and only evil, root and branch, flower and leaf, and fruit. It springs from and is nourished by an utter rejection of the scriptures. He went on to dramatically say, when the abolitionist tells me that slaveholding is sin, in the simplicity of my faith in the holy scriptures, I point him to the sacred record and tell him in all candor, as my text does, that his teaching blasphemes the name of God and his doctrine. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that where you have one group of people, the abolitionists, who are calling for freedom and equality and reading the text and saying, look at how it invites us to freedom. And then another group of people that go, look, it's the plain reading of the text. Anything other is to denounce God and his teaching. You sit in this tense place. Because virtually... No Christians today, is my assumption, would use the text to say we should be for slavery. But very few, if any, Christians have done the due diligence to figure out how they could have arrived at such an interpretation. So the question becomes, how do we? Last week, Kevin reintroduced the idea of the redemptive movement hermeneutic, this way of reading the text and understanding the text that we've been teaching for probably 14 or so years here, continuing to wrestle with it. And for many of us, this is new, but for the rest, a brief refresher on the redemptive movement hermeneutic. So at the very beginning of time, God breathed, and as he breathed, the world came into existence, and from that moment forward, he has progressively revealed himself to us and continues to be progressive. And one of the most progressive ways that God revealed himself to us is what we understand to be the scriptures, his divine revelation. The scriptures have authority, they have significance and power, and the spirit speaks to us in incredible ways through the text, which is why it's so important for us to understand it. But it's also important to understand that when you approach the scriptures, you're looking at the text from a much different perspective than the original readers. I'm going to show you a couple of illustrations on the screen. This first illustration is from William Webb and is proved to be a helpful representation of the redemptive movement hermeneutic. So the person on the left that's in the original culture, this person is looking at the teachings of scripture from a very forward perspective. 
Everything that's being taught them is a movement forward. It's progressive. It's new revelation. It's interesting. It's continuing to move. The person on the right is looking back into the text. So what this creates is two unique perspectives. Perspective of the one looking forward. Perspective of the one looking back into the text. So, first, the revelation for the person on the left. As history unfolds, the stories of faith are recorded. The revelation is moving people closer and closer and closer to the teachings of Jesus. Each movement is a major shift forward toward greater reconciliation, greater uh, and more ethical approach to the world. The person looking back into the text, that is us, is looking back and reading an ethic that is frozen in time. Some describe it as a, a fixed ethic or a fixed way of expressing that ethic. So meaning that the teaching or the command was spoken to a specific context to a specific people at a specific time for a specific reason and we now are charged with taking that specificity and bringing it into our current context to understand what it means for us and for the future. So let me give you the second illustration. We believe that the scriptures is teaching this movement, this story in a way that the trajectory is always toward redemption. So as the one is looking in from the left, the other is looking from the right, that ultimately we are moving as a collective group of people toward an ultimate ethic when the kingdom has come and the world is the way God intended. So the teachings of Jesus in a whole is leading us closer and closer toward redemption and holiness and reconciliation because the teaching is not static. So I want us to look again at our passage of scripture because there's a temptation I think that many of us have, myself included, to just ignore it, to move past it, to go, ah, let's leave that for someone else to think about and then look on to the next. But I actually don't want us to ignore it. And the reason I don't want us to ignore it is because I believe with all of my being that we can actually celebrate this passage because this passage is an incredible leap forward at the time of Paul's writing. Not an incredible leap forward today, but an incredible leap forward from the culture in which they were embedded. It's inspiring because the Roman culture had a particular way of viewing humanity, and Paul writes into that context and goes, look at what it could be. He's moving the conversation forward. And I want to look at how that progressive movement in the text kind of shows up. And again, it's not the ultimate ethic. It's not the way we know it should be and the way we know it will be in the kingdom. But it is a giant leap forward. So look at the text again. First, Paul connects the slave's effort to Christ. Whatever you do, work at it with your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Here's what's fascinating. Paul ignores the master in the teaching and says nothing about the person's authority. He doesn't acknowledge the authority of the master. He directly talks to the servant and says, basically kind of ignore that dude and put your eyes on Christ. And he's adjusting the whole conversation away from this power dynamic 
of a relationship between a master and slave and saying, look, there's a whole other thing going on here that I want you to see. And so the attention is not for the rule and the authority of the master, but instead the attention drifts to Christ. The second thing, Paul levels the playing field of humanity when he tells masters that they're actually slaves as well. So he says, masters, you know that you also have a master in heaven. So what he does is he shifts the conversation, and by doing this, he's declaring that the master's preeminent identity is not master to slave or slave to master, but rather slave and slave to Jesus. See how he does that shift? It's incredible. It's this giant leap forward in a culture that's going, no, 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 no. There is no equality. No, 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 no. There are power structures, and I'm the one in control, and this is the one that I have complete authority and autonomy over. And instantly, Paul's going, no, no, no. You're both slaves to a, a much higher authority, to a much different reality, which would have been empowering to the servant and would have been humbling to the master. The third idea I want you to see is Paul lays down some corrective words on the masters, telling them to clean up their behavior, and he points to Jesus as the judge. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves what is right and fair. Again, Paul is addressing the masters, and he's saying, treat everyone with the same dignity worth and value that you yourself would want to be treated. He's seeking to kind of embed the situation with love and submission and reconciliation and love and kindness and like just trying to infuse a ugly space with this beautiful kingdom ethic. So Paul's teaching is a radical leap forward. It's so progressive. And yet, at the same time, like I mentioned, it's not the ultimate ethic. As we look back into the text from our perspective, we are challenged to see the spirit of the text. And as we do, we by extension recognize that the scripture is leading to a more ultimate ethic, to a kingdom ethic, toward full equality for men and women, full equality for all, regardless of ethnicity, education, resources, you name it. All equal in the kingdom of God. So, some would say, in reality we're going beyond the text. You might even say that we're striving to live into the ultimate ethic now. That's part of why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. God's kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are not called to wait for his goodness, his shalom, his kingdom expression to be just at Sunday. But we're called to see it alive now as much as we can, right? And so by us seeing the spirit of the text, we're turning it loose on the world today. That is part of our calling as God's people. Webb, later on in his book, goes and makes this statement. As a cultural context changes, or from the time of Paul to us, 
we have to move back up the ladder, which is, is referring to a ladder of abstraction from abstract to concrete, to the ethical imperative and possibly abandon the cultural form of expressing that imperative in favor of a more culturally suitable expression that moves us closer to the ultimate ethic that God has revealed. Paul's teaching is time-bound in that space, creating an ethic or a way of living out what it means to love my neighbor, what it means to submit to others, what it means to be in mutual submission. And that cultural expression of it can stay there and we can reimagine a new cultural expression of the same ethic. So loving our neighbor today, mutual submission today, looks different than it did in Paul's time. Paul's time was not prescriptive for us as much as it's driving us toward an ultimate ethic. So you might ask yourself the question, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us in 2023, almost 2024? I'm going to give you two suggestions. First one is this. Turn hierarchy on its head. Turn it upside down. Anytime Jesus starts to speak about power dynamics or the relationship of who should be first and who shall be last, he always flips it. Always. If you are going, yeah, I'm not so sure, Russ. I mean, come on. I'll give you a couple examples. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples were arguing about who is greatest in the kingdom, he says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant or slave, same word, of all. He goes on later when speaking of authority. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them and the high officials exercise authority Speaking to his disciples, who he had just given all authority to, and the power of the Spirit, he says this, not so with you. No, that is not how we do it. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but be, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our example, and I want to reiterate it again. And in Mark, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Philippians 2, we, we even see this go further when it says that we should take on the same attitude as Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but instead made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. The very foundation of our faith centers on a person who is willing to give up everything, was willing to take on all of it for us. That is the flip of power. That is the hierarchical change. That is flattening of all leadership to a mutual submission and love for one another, which is so powerful. Rachel Held Evans says this concerning that idea, but with Christ, hierarchical relationships are exposed for the sham that they are. As the last are made first and the first are made last, the poor are blessed, the meek inherit the earth, 
And the God of the universe takes the form of a slave. So give away power. Serve others. Put the interest of others before your own. Stand up for the vulnerable. Find where there is inequity and then seek to be a part of fixing it. Whatever influence you have, do not live into the cultural forms of power and authority, but instead live into what it means to love our neighbor by serving them, by washing feet. Live into the kingdom in the here and now. Second and final idea. Uh, The story continues. We have what I think is defined as a pilgrim theology. We are on a journey. It's not a destination, but it is a following in faith. We've been a pilgrim people from the very beginning, and I think we will be a pilgrim people till the very end. We're on a journey, and it strikes me how often in our faith this is true. You even probably acknowledge it where you see in your life the journey of faith you've been on, the ways that God has changed you, how he's moved and matured and developed who you are in your understanding of faith and love. And that is true for all of us. What we just experienced over these last few moments is an example of how at one point in our American Christianity, we use the text in a way where we oppressed people and took advantage of taking the clear teaching of the book in a way I don't think was ever intended. And we understand the more we grow in this understanding of faith, we realize that the scriptures are moving us toward freedom, toward holiness, toward shalom. And as we do that, we have this long history of seeing a more and more redemptive way of understanding what God is up to. And if truth be told, I think we're in one of those moments again. We're in a moment that is pivotal in the life of the church. We're in a moment where we have to begin to ask ourselves some really hard questions about what is the scriptures teaching about how we care for our neighborhood well. I mean, every day and every week, we are surrounded by a group of people who we love. And at the same time, there's deep struggle. How do we do that well? I think we have to re-examine what it means to, to not reap to the very edges of your fields. That's a pretty cultural explanation of generosity, right? And, and then we go, oh, it's time bound. No, no, generosity today, what can we imagine that that looks like for our neighbors? What can we imagine it looks like for those without homes that honestly live on our steps? that come here five days of the week for a meal. What does that look like for us? What does it look like for our LGBTQ siblings in this community and in this city? What does it look like for us to be a redemptive people, continuing to invite, include, welcome to full participation? What does that look like? And how do we do that well? And what does it look like for our strangers, our foreigners, our immigrants. Anytime we stand in opposition to that, anytime we say, well, that's them and this is us, unless your us is the kingdom of God, 
you've misunderstood your place, right? That's your first loyalty. Kingdom of God above all. There is no us in them because our king rules it all. What does it look like for us to welcome the foreigner? I mean, hospitality actually means to welcome the stranger. It doesn't mean to have people over for tea and a scone. That's great, too. I love scones, right? But it actually means to say, I don't know who you are, but you're in need. and You're welcome here. You're always welcome here. So can we imagine together again what it looks like as a community to be that kind of people, not just here on a Sunday morning, but all the time? I want to end with this quote. Luke Timothy Johnson says this, If theology is in fact an attempt to understand living faith, that it must always be an unfinished process for the data continues to come in as the living God persists in working through the lives of people and being revealed in their stories, in our stories. Let's pray. God, we... Um, we know that your scriptures teach us that if we welcome the stranger, um, to, to be conscious of the fact that we're welcoming you. That when we care for and feed and love and visit in prison and we clothe the naked and we do all these expressions of love that, that you tell us that it is actually as if we're doing it to you. So God, as we looked at a really heavy passage of scripture, one that I think the church has often ignored or tried to turn into something that has to do with how hard we work from nine to five. God, may we look at these passages again with fresh eyes. May we see this trajectory of redemption, of reconciliation, of wholeness that you are leading us to. And may we be your kingdom people now. May we not just be kind of going through the motions, waiting until Uh, We're removed from this kind of setting or until your kingdom comes in fullness, but may we be a part of ushering that in. May we be a kingdom outpost of love and acceptance and generosity and hospitality. May anyone who enters this space on a Sunday and anyone who enters our groups and our homes and our community, may they be met with a vision of the kingdom come here and now. We ask that. Jesus' name. Amen.